podcasting from the land of 10,000 lakes in the city of five. This is the Green Pastures with Jesus podcast, the audio home of Shepherd of the Lakes Lutheran Church in lovely Fairmont, Minnesota. You've found your daily home for a few minutes with Jesus, including a Monday and Thursday in-depth study podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Peter Hagen. And if this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The Green Pastures with Jesus podcast is produced five days a week for your growth in God's Word, and show notes can be found at our website, www.shepherdandlakes.net. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook. Just search for Shepherd of the Lakes Lutheran Church of Fairmont, Minnesota. All links are in the show notes. Now, let's get to today's show. switching in a way, and there's a couple things to note. Maybe this title isn't exactly right, Problem Issues, because actually what we've been doing the last two weeks, when we were talking about the doctrine of Islam, that's the biggest problem, because that doctrine takes people to hell. But our problem issues, we mean the interaction between Islam and the world, and the whole all the issues you see, and of course, if we haven't heard about them enough since 9-11, we're going to be very front-end center in this political campaign. So there's hardly a week there, there's going to be things coming on. Latest thing in the Milwaukee paper, I think it was this morning rather than yesterday, when we get the appropriate place, I'll comment a little more on the different kinds of Islam. It said that President Obama, to kind of get enter himself into the discussion a little bit, is going to be visiting a mosque in America for the first time. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of mosque it is and, and how the message comes out of that. I'll talk a little bit about that. So by problem issues, on page 9, there's this little space if you want to take notes. We're going to talk about the jihad issue and all that first, and then we'll see how much time we have left for the role of women and so on. So the main issues are jihad and terrorism. We'll talk, we'll talk about that a little bit in the overview. But I'm going to go back and talk about the term jihad a little bit more because just you'll, you'll hear about it all the time. And, of course, there's a difference between jihad and terrorism and jihad and war. In other words, there are some Muslims who would say, I don't believe in suicide bombers, especially against women and children and civilian targets. But I don't reject the idea that, by force, Islam, Sharia law, can be imposed on a country. I mentioned that at the mosque out here at 13th and Lake, when I asked them, how could Jews and Christians and Muslims all live together in Palestine, they said, Jews and Christians could be allowed to live in an Islamic state. And what that means is what we'll be talking about today. If you want to know, well, what is a true Islamic state? Look at Saudi Arabia. No freedom whatsoever for Christians. Look at Iran where even Muslims who are considered unorthodox are persecuted and driven out in other religions. The people are killed. Christian pastors are killed. And then look at Pakistan. We had a pastor in Pakistan, more of a doctor. He had a medical clinic and everything. He and his family have had to leave Pakistan because their lives were under such threat. His brother was actually kidnapped. And miracle of miracles, somehow they were able to buy him out. Usually when that happens, you never see the person again. 
and they will come and write on your wall. Say if you have a Christian clinic, they'll come and write verses from the Quran, paint them on your wall. What happens if you paint your wall? You have blasphemed the Quran, and blaspheming the Quran is death. And that can be imposed even on other Muslim countries. So we have to say, well, what are Islamic countries actually like? Go and look. And there's a difference between endorsing terrorism and endorsing expansion of Islam by war and by government force. Not necessarily that they would make you be Muslims, but that they would not allow any other religion to be publicly practiced except Islam. Our doctor from Pakistan would very much like to go back there. He's quite courageous. would like to preach the gospel. I'm sure their clinic and everything has long ago been destroyed and taken over. I know them fairly well, but I haven't seen them for a while. I think his wife said, that life is gone. That life is gone. And maybe they can continue to preach through Internet, through satellite TV and stuff like that. But those, none of those countries allow freedom for Christians. And that's what we're actually talking about here. So is there persecution and oppression, even if it isn't by outright terrorism? What do Muslims want in the West? In uh, probably two weeks, we'll talk about the role of women in Islam. They're very sensitive to that topic. And of course, we have a little bit of flexibility between now and Palm Sunday. The two Sundays before Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday and the Sunday before that, we're going to look at the sites of Jesus in Jerusalem, his tomb. Calvary, all of those sorts of things. And then we'll have two other weeks in there, and, and I'm basically going to look at places where Jesus was in Galilee, like the places we heard about in the sermon this morning, that. And we can do that either for one or two weeks. So in about a, probably next week, we'll sort of decide do we think one more week on Islam will be enough, or do you think we think we might need two? So it's a question of you know how many we do on Jesus' sites, three weeks or four weeks. And I suppose we could always do one after that, but that's how far we have it worked out so far. The beginning of Islam. All the colored parts of this map are all areas that Islam conquered by war. And they were satisfied with that. How different history would have been if they had not been defeated in France. They got all the way up to the area of Paris. And they were defeated by a man named Charles Markel, which means the hammer. If they would have won there, there maybe wouldn't have been a Christian Europe anymore, and there never would have been a Reformation. Later on, See, Constantinople was the Roman Empire's east, and that was like a, a cork in the bottle that was holding them back. When Constantinople fell, that wasn't until 1453. Then they were able to take all this part of Europe. They reached all the way to Vienna. So two times they were right on the brink of eliminating Christian Europe, and both times by God's providence they did not. So everything from Spain to India was all conquered in the period of about a century by warfare. And Islam was imposed as, we could say, the state religion under the caliph. In Indonesia, I'd say that was probably spread more by commerce and what we could call uh, preaching. But we'll talk about that. Somebody asked about the Crusades, and I'll touch on that again. And they say, well, we just Islam only waged defensive wars. But what they did, the Roman emperor was in the city called Constantinople, now called Istanbul. And they told him, we invite you to become a Muslim. And he respectfully declined. And they said, I'll see you've attacked Islam. So we're fighting a defensive war against you. So if you decline to accept Islam, or if you decline to pay tribute, 
you are fighting a war against them. And they are, they are simply themselves. To refuse Islam is to attack Islam. The Byzantine, that's a fancy name for the Eastern Roman Empire. The city was also called Byzantium. Today's Istanbul. He politely declined. The Persian king was somewhat less polite in his declining. But in both cases, it was Islam that attacked these countries. Some Christian countries, some like India and that, non-Christian countries. So it's a simple historical fact that cannot be questioned. It's not like a wild opinion or anything. That everything from Spain to <coughs> India was conquered by war. And that Islam was made the state religion. And we'll talk a little more about how Christians were treated. No, when, when Muslims in the United States, when you had discussions with them here, they're, they're not, they don't have that open hostility that they do in these other countries, do they? Well, I told you what they said at the mosque on 13th and late. I asked them, how could Christians? and Jews and Muslims all live in the land of Palestine. What would be an acceptable compromise? And they said an acceptable compromise would be that Jews and Christians could live in an Islamic state. In other words, that there should be an Islamic state. Now, what, whether at one point they would figure they can do that in the United States or not, remember Muhammad, when Muhammad was in the minority, what was his position on religion? He was for freedom for everybody. When he was in the majority, what was his position on religion? Changed. That, that's often the case. We can talk about specific countries. So the Crusades, they often bring up, well, the Crusades were such bad people. Well, the Crusaders did some bad things. They were all kind of mixed motives, political. The Pope really wanted to regain control of the Eastern Church. The Crusades happened about 1,100. It's a good round number. In 1054, just before the Crusades, the Eastern Orthodox Church had formally broken ties with the Pope and said, we do not accept him as our leader. So one of his motives for the Crusades, if we go out there and help the Eastern Christians, they'll come back. And when the, when the Crusaders went to Jerusalem, they really established a Roman Catholic form of Christianity there in the cathedrals and stuff like that, rather than the Orthodox. So the Orthodox didn't get quite what they wanted. But see, the issue was right here. The Turks had come in, and now the Turks were ruling the Islamic empires instead of the Arabs. And Constantinople was holding them back. So they had held out here for 600 years, 400 years at this point. And now they were trying to get through so they could get into Europe. After the Crusades, the Christians at Constantinople held out for another 400 years. Until 1454, just before the Reformation. That's why during Luther's time, you know, he always talks about the Turks threatening. You see, when Constantinople was there, then the Turks would come in, the Muslims would come in. That's why you have such a mess in Yugoslavia, where you have Muslims, and you've got Eastern Orthodox Christians, you've got Roman Catholic Christians, and you've got Muslims. And that's why Yugoslavia is such a fragmented thing, and there's so many bitter conflicts there. They're fighting about things that go back to the 1300s. So we can't whitewash the Crusaders and pretend, well, they were all really nice guys or anything. But to say that this is Christians kind of attract Islam, or somebody asks, people often say, well, the Crusades were a Christian version of jihad. That's really not fair to say that, because they were trying to capture back territory that had already been captured. They weren't going out and trying to capture the world. They certainly weren't trying to make Muslims Christians. They were trying to regain control of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a collision point because the Muslims had made an important city for them. It had always been important to the Jews, of course. 
the tradition, why it's important to the Muslims, I talked about the story is that Muhammad made a visit to heaven from Jerusalem. The Quran doesn't say that, it just says from the farthest mosque. And so the Silver Dome Mosque in Jerusalem is named the farthest mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And supposedly that's where Muhammad went to heaven. Christians, of course, heavily believed in pilgrimage, going to the sacred sites. Now, I'm going to probably going to go to Israel later this year. And I just want to, you know, it's just, it's good to see. And we lived there for a while. It's just nice to see the places. We don't go there with the idea, well, we can get more forgiveness of sins if we can find the right Calvary. It's more to appreciate the history or to see where Jesus was. It helps you feel the stories of the Bible on that. Both Orthodox and Roman Catholic Christians believed in pilgrimage that it was spiritually good for you to go to the tomb of Jesus. Just before the Crusades, the Muslim ruler, fondly known as Hakim the Mad, in Egypt had destroyed the tomb of Christ. The tomb of Christ had existed for 600 years. When you go there now in Jerusalem, there's just kind of a stone box there. It's called the Edical. And it kind of like represents the tomb of Christ. The tomb of Christ was destroyed. So that's the real background of the Crusades and the collision. And I think we would say the Christians didn't always treat the Jews very well either. You know, their, their record isn't so clean either. So in Jerusalem now, you kind of have the two competing sites, the dome in the western part of the old city, which is over the tomb of Christ, now destroyed, and the uh, dome of the rock. It's really a prayer place, not a mosque. Where Jews, the place is the western wall. This is the foundation of the Dr. Herod's temple. Really, Orthodox Jews won't go into the Temple of Mount because they don't know exactly where the temple was. I think there's very good evidence of it right here. But only the high priest can go in the Holy of Holies. So really, Orthodox Jews aren't going to go up in the Temple Mount because you could be walking around and you could be in the Holy of Holies where you're not supposed to be. So really, Orthodox Jews, they pray outside of the Temple Mount, not inside of the Temple Mount. And as far as a worship area, it's a Muslim area. So what is jihad? This is kind of review, but I think it's important. The closest translation we could have for jihad is probably struggle. And, we, and a Muslim can say, I am doing a jihad to become a better Muslim. Like we time speak, a battle against the flesh. So a jihad can be spiritual warfare. It can be trying to promote Islam by argument and reason. And some would say that the spiritual jihad is better or more important. Military jihad is sometimes called the lesser jihad, but groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and that, who were the ones you know, fighting for control of Egypt, they always say all of these go together. You start with personal jihad to become a better Muslim. That's how you'll have more Muslim families. Then you can have a Muslim society and a Muslim state. And if you have Muslim states, remember the principle is always supposed to be all Muslim states should be under one ruler who unites all of Islam. That, that seldom happens in reality. Why? Because there's always five guys that think I am the one, Caleb, that everybody should be following. And the ISIS guy now is coming somewhat more successful because they've said that the people in Libya now, they're saying we will accept <coughs> the Islamic State. Remember, we called it the Islamic State in Syria, and the president referred to it as the JVT. They said, no, we're not the Islamic State in Syria. We are the Islamic State. All Muslim active groups everywhere need to be under one caliph. And we think this is the caliph that you should be under. So now there'll be ISIS in Yemen. There'll be ISIS in Libya. 
there'll be ISIS or Islamic State now in Pakistan. I think they're working. But the principle always be is there should be one ruler of the Islamic world. Who is, he's called the Caliph or Caliph, the successor of Muhammad. So probably it's most fair to translate jihad as struggle. It isn't limited to warfare with weapons and armies, but it certainly includes warfare with weapons and armies. It's sanctioned both by the Quran and the Hadith. In the Quran, there's over 100 passages that refer to using the sword for Islam. And the so-called liberals would say, well, those don't really count. Uh, there was a guy on TV last week from a movement I'll be talking about. He said, well, we have to redo the Quran for the 21st century. Remember what I said at the beginning. To be fair, we're going to define Islam as what the Quran says. Just like we would define the Bible as uh, Christianity. What does the Bible say? That's a fair way. Jihad is often abused. Just like anybody that doesn't like a political opponent, they'll call them Nazis or fascists or something like that. Anytime Muslims are fighting each other, they'll often say they're fighting a jihad. In other words, if, if there are rebels against Assad, they certainly say they are fighting a jihad. When Iran and Iraq were fighting each other, the, the Sunnis against the Shiites, both Saddam Hussein, who wasn't particularly religious, and the Ayatollahs of Iran, they were both fighting a jihad. Because see, the real Islam is my Islam. The real leader of Islam should be me. Saudi Arabia says we should be the leaders of the Muslim world. Iran says, no, no, we should be the leaders of the Muslim world. Naturally, all of them, when they're fighting Israel, they're all doing jihad. Uh, certainly Osama bin Laden, he always spoke about his war against crusaders and Jews. Crusaders and Jews. Crusaders, of course, is his term for Christians. So Islam's mission is to rule the world. Remember I told you already Thomas Jefferson, who was kind of religious but not a Bible believer. He didn't believe in the Trinity and Christ as Savior, but he kind of believed in the general providence of God. Thomas Jefferson was the first American president to fight Islamic terrorism. He fell into that because they were capturing and enslaving our people. And they told him, we'll stop doing that if you pay, pay tribute to Islam. So Thomas Jefferson got tricked Adams into inventing two things. Building up the U.S. Navy and the famous hymn, From the Halls of Montezuma to the Shores of Tripoli. So they created the Marine Corps so that... So that when Jefferson became president, he would have a means to fight against Tripoli, where the Barbary pirates, where the Muslim pirates were coming from. And so it's, it, all of this is nothing new. It's stuff that has been there all <coughs> from the beginning. This is the Quran itself. Give tidings of painful doom to those who disbelieve, excepting those of the idolaters with whom you have a treaty. So you can make a temporary treaty. Saudi leaders could say... Well, we just made a treaty with the United States to, to help them, to get them to help us against Saddam Hussein, or to get them to help us against Iran. You can make a temporary treaty. And who have abated nothing of your right, nor have supported anyone against you. So if you make a treaty with non-believers, okay. Fulfill your treaty with them till their term. Allah loves those who keep their duty to him. When the sacred months, that's the treaty, have passed, Slay the idolaters wherever you find them, take them captive, besiege them, and prepare for them such an ambush. If they repent and establish worship and pay the poor group, then lead their way. The more moderate view is you have three choices when Islam, Islamic forces copy. You can become Muslim. 
A lot of times they didn't necessarily want that because if you stayed Christian, you had to pay more taxes. Or you can pay the tax or you can die. So there are three options. The difference about ISIS, ISIS favors the third one. You can die. You can become Muslim or you can die. Many Muslim empires have actually favored the second one. You can live as second-class citizens and you can live in an Islamic state. The flag of jihad, again, is nothing new. You probably see this on TV all the time as the ISIS flag. They didn't invent it. It's, it's just the what has always been the flag of jihad, the verses from the Quran, and they simply are saying, we are the successors, we are the ones who carry on what has always been the case of Islam. How would you translate that? That's just this jihada. Yeah, the, the, the Allah. There is no God, but Allah Muhammad is the prophet. Ayatollah Khomeini, that's the, that's the Shiite version. He was the one who led the Islamic revolution in Iran. The Ayatollahs are kind of like, they're kind of like cardinals in the Catholic Church. They don't have one pope, they have a chief Ayatollah. And the Ayatollahs actually are supposed to have supreme power over like the president of the Islamic, they call it the Islamic Republic of Iran. So this is the founder of one of the two main modern Islamic states. Those who know nothing of Islam pretend that Islam counsels against war. Notice he doesn't use the word terrorism. He uses the word war. Those who say this are witless. Islam says, kill all the unbelievers, just as they would kill you. I told you, even in Indonesia, which was considered very moderate, Muslims who became Christians, even like 25 years ago, they say, we were always taught when we were children Christians hate you and want to kill you. That's what the little children are taught in Palestine. From early on, they're taught Christians hate you and want to kill you. That's why sometimes humanitarian aid is a good thing. In Indonesia, we would collect eyeglasses and send them over and give them to the poor and that. And some of our Muslim neighbors would say, you know, I've always been taught Christians hate me. And it doesn't really look like that's true. It looks like Christians are friends and want to help me. Kill them, put them to the sword, scatter their armies. Islam says, kill in the service of Allah. And now they are our allies against ISIS. So this is the leader, the founder of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. So this isn't the Quran from 800 years ago. And you can't say, well, this is just a little fringe guy or something. He was the most powerful leader in the Islamic world at that time. This was his statement. In Pakistan, the community of Islam in Pakistan, the reason why jihad should be waged against them is that they did not adopt the law sent down by Allah through his messenger. The only reason you need to have war against somebody, if you say, here's Sharia, take it, you can have Sharia. And you say, no, that's, that's a cause of war. If they say, here, take Sharia, and you say, no. This is the aim of jihad with the Jews and the Christians. It is not to force them to become Muslims and adopt the Islamic way of life. But they can live in an Islamic state. And as I told you, the scary part to me was this is what they say, this is what they said at least at the mosque on 13th and late. They didn't say in the United States Christians and Jews could live in an Islamic state. But they did say the solution in Palestine is that Jews and Christians could live in an Islamic state. Even a secular state 
which where there was no more Jewish state and all Christ and there could, everybody would be in a secular state, that is not acceptable to them. Same way Turkey became a secular state, and that's not acceptable either. <laughs> they should be forced to pay the tax in order to end their independence and supremacy so that they should not remain rulers and sovereigns in the land. These powers should be forced from them by the followers of the true faith who should assume the sovereignty and lead others toward the right way. This is exactly what was said to Thomas Jefferson over 200 years ago. This is nothing new or radicalizing or something that wasn't always there and it wasn't mainstream. The purpose of jihad is not conversion, but all of Islam, all the Islam, but submission of everyone to Islam. That's what they told Thomas Jefferson. Every Christian state must submit to Islam. That doesn't mean we have to directly rule you. If you pay tribute to us, and they were pirates too, they wanted tribute, they wanted loot really, then we can leave you alone. But otherwise we're going to keep enslaving and attacking your people. Two views. Islam will dominate the world. And you often hear about this, a jihad for love. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this group. Amahadiya. Twice in the last week I've seen somebody on TV saying Islam is a religion of peace. And this is the true and real Islam. And then and the little print down at the bottom it said he's the leader of the Ahmadiyya Mosque. And there is one of those in Milwaukee. The Ahmadiyya Muslim community is the only Islamic organization to believe that the long-awaited turn of Messiah Jesus has come in the person of Ahmad, the one the group is named after. Notice when this group was founded, it's not the low long-time Islam. This group was founded in the late 1800s. And this Ahmad said, I am the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jesus' return. <coughs> Muslims say Jesus will have something to do at the end of the world, but he said, I am the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jesus' return. I don't think he directly said, I am Jesus. This is the group also that believed Jesus was crucified, but he revived and he went out and lived in India for a while. So they're called the Amahadiyya. And I'll give you the punchline here. They believe God sent Ahmad, like Jesus, to end wars, condemn bloodshed, and reinstitute morality, justice, and peace. This has brought about an unprecedented revival in Islam. Ahmad... This is also why the nation of Islam is heretics, because Wallace Muhammad believed he was an incarnation of the province. An unprecedented era revival, he divested Islam of fanatical beliefs and practices by vigorously translating Israel's true, Islam's true and essential teaching. So he said, this is the true and essential teaching of Islam, but he started it in 1880. 1880. And I'll kind of get to the bottom line here. He also recognized the noble teachings of religious founders including Zoroaster, Abraham, Jesus, Moses, Krishna, Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tzu, and Guru Nanak, and explained how such teachings converge into the one true Islam. His Islam is like Baha'i or like a world religion. Confucius, that's why you can understand why Muslims regard it as heretics. But notice he says this is the one true Islam. I'll give you an analogy in a minute. It's a leading Islamic organization to reject terrorism in any form. Ahmad emphatically declared that an aggressive jihad by the sword should not be in Islam. There should be bloodless intellectual jihad of the pimp. So he thinks, yes, Islam should rule, but it should rule by logical conviction. The only Islamic community to endorse a separation of mosque and state, the champions empowerment and education of women, its members are among the most law-abiding, educated, and 
engaged Muslims in the world. Now that all sounds really nice, and a lot of our leaders will quote, well this is the true and real Islam, but they claim they have tens of millions of followers, but there are billions of Muslims. <coughs> Two-thirds, this religious religion started in Pakistan, and it cannot fight it. Two, two or three Pakistani Muslims say Ahmadis are not Muslims at all. They're kafirs. They're unbelievers. They're infidels. Only 7% of the Muslims in Pakistan even would grant the Ahmadis as the status of being Muslims. He said they're not Muslims at all. And they are, they are banned by the state of Pakistan. Well, 26% say, eh, I don't know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. So to say, well, this is the true Islam, it would be very much like this, saying Jehovah's Witnesses are the true Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses claim they are the true religion of the Bible, don't they? They say we are the real witnesses of Jehovah. Or maybe even a better example, and probably numerically similar, would be the Mormons. We can't say Mormonism is really Christian because they don't accept Jesus as Savior from sin. But Mormons will commonly claim they are a Christian church. And so this group that supposedly represents true Islam, it's a, it's a cult where this guy makes himself the Messiah. The, the lead, their leader made himself the Messiah. And he, he does teach tea, truth. And all, his truth is all religions are the same. We shouldn't have war. We should all love each other. But in Pakistan, its home territory, only 7% of the people even would, would say, yes, I think they are Muslims. So when you see these people appear on TV or when a political leader says, well, the real Islam is about peace, take a look and say, are they actually saying Ahmadiyya is the real Islam? If so, I don't think they understand what they're saying because they're really endorsing a cult whose leader thought he was the Messiah, which I think they'd be more embarrassed to do that than anything else. So a lot of times, see, is it really an Ahmadiyya community? There are other liberal Muslims just like there are liberal Christians. We would say, I'll give you an example. We would say, what is real Lutheranism? Some people would say, well, the ELCA has the most members. They must be the real Lutheranism. We would say we have to define the real Lutheranism by those who believe what the Lutheran confessions following Scripture teach, those who believe in infant baptism, those who believe in the Lord's Supper. Again, we would say we have to define Lutheranism by the doctrinal statements of Lutheranism, not by what somebody says, or even necessarily by numbers. But the Ahmadiyya, they don't have either the numbers or the long history of Islam in their favor. They're a new, we'll say modern, almost humanistic, you know, it's all the same religion. Whether you have Buddha, whether you have Confucius, it doesn't really matter. So when you hear about the true Islam, ask about that. This one is just a hadith. Should people be forced to be Muslims? Allah's apostle Muhammad said, I have been ordered by Allah to fight the people till they say, none has the right to be worshipped by Allah, and whoever has said it, then he will save his life and property. So Muhammad supposedly said, the first thing the person should be told, you must worship Allah. That would be the first option. This also is tradition. Whoever changes Islamic religion, then kill him. How do you become a Muslim? Say a lady marries a Muslim. And she says, I, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the prophet. She's now a Muslim. If she comes to regret that and repent and goes back to her Christianity, she would be subject to death. Same way in Saudi Arabia. If I'd be in Saudi Arabia and they'd catch me 
passing out Christian stuff. It's because I'm an American citizen. The government, probably all they would do, they put my name on the computer and make sure I never, I left Saudi Arabia that very day and never came back again. But they probably, because you know they got, they need the American support a little bit. They wouldn't kill me. But a Muslim who became a Christian could be put to death. Another one. A man embraced Islam and then reverted back to Judaism. Remember, this is a tradition. This isn't in the Quran. What is wrong with this man? Abu Musa replied, he embraced Islam and then went back to Judaism. I will not sit down unless you kill him, as is the verdict of Allah and his apostles. And so you should ask a Muslim who says, I believe in peace and so on. So you should ask him, so you are actively working and writing to the Saudi government and asking them to retract this policy that anybody that leaves Islam will be put to death. Well, no. You're writing letters to your congressman and asking them to put pressure on Iran not to hold that Christian Muslims who become Christians should be executed. Muslims who do that could at least with some plausibility claim they are working for peace, aren't they? So it isn't just an issue of terrorism. But if somebody endorses the principle that a Muslim who becomes Christian should be put to death, that's not even anywhere in the neighborhood of religious freedom, is it? And should that be uh, reversed and taken back? Jews and Christians could live in Islamic State as dhimis. There's a book written by that in the Near East. Dhimi means kind of like second-class citizens. So, as I said, right here at our mosque, they said, Jews and Christians can live in an Islamic state in Palestine. But if I lived in what was now Israel, I would have to pay the extra taxes. And I could not openly, publicly worship. I have to pay the extra tax. And they would say, well, that's just, that's just fair. You guys are Christians, so you can't serve in the army. Well, that already shows it's an Islamic state. Yes, huh? if, you're not do, if you can't serve in the army, it's not proper that you pay more. So this would be the rationale they would give. They said, we're not taxing you because you're Christians. We're taxing you because you're not in the army. Well, I'll, I'll go in the army. Well, no, you can't go in the army because you're Christian. <laughs> Apostasy of Muslims is a capital offense. And yet, for some, it's better the turban than the tiara. This is a tragic part of Christian history. In some ways, for some, it was better to be under Muslim rule where they had to pay taxes than to be under the Catholic Spanish Inquisition where they could be burned at the stake for being heretics if they went against the Pope. So it isn't, it isn't free from them. Motives for jihad. Again, this is tradition. The prophet, peace be upon him, you're always supposed to say that if you mention the prophet. Often just abbreviated PBH. The person who anticipate, participates in holy battles in Allah's cause and nothing compels him to do so except his belief in Allah and his apostle will be recompensed by Allah either by a reward or booty if he survives will get loot or admitted to paradise if he's killed in battle as a martyr. And this, of course, is how they recruit the people. Another tradition, our prophet, peace be upon him, has informed us that our Lord says, whoever among us is killed will go to paradise and lead such a luxurious life as he has never seen. And of course, often the interpretation of that luxurious life, I don't know what they often the women martyrs, but is the, the prevalence of beautiful women. It seems like you're quoting this Saudi al-Bukhari. Yeah. Where did he come from? Where These are all traditions. In other words, it's just like in the Talmud. Oh, that's Jews. not a person? That's a, it's a yeah, Sahid al-Bukhari is a person. Yeah, where did he come from? He's one of the guys who gathered all the traditions together. Uh-huh. It would be like among the Jews, he'd be like a, uh, a scholar who collects the Talmud. And so 
the ones that aren't written in the Quran, the traditions have, that's the Hadith I've been talking about. They say, Muhammad's friend Omar said that. The Prophet said this. <laughs> so that's the tradition. This is another one. Risala, that's another one of the traditions. The choice given by the Muslims to the enemy is for the enemy to accept the Islamic faith, to pay tribute. If they accept either one of these, they are then to be fought. So you're again, you could say, will, you, will your country become Muslim? You'd say, well, no thanks, we are Christian. Or no thanks, we're a secular state. That is a grounds for war from Islam against you. That would then become, by their definition, a defensive war. Flight from the enemy in battle is one of the mortal sins in Islam when the enemy are twice the number of Muslims or less. If they're more than twice as much, they got us outnumbered too much, run away and live to fight another day. A Muslim is under obligation to fight the enemy under the command of the Muslim ruler, whether such a ruler is a devout Muslim or a sinner. So even any Muslims who hated Saddam Hussein could say, well, if Saddam Hussein is fighting the Crusaders and the Jews, we should still support Saddam Hussein because he's, he's a bad Muslim, but he's a Muslim. So we should support him against the Jews and Crusaders. Does that last statement mean that if you're a Muslim, you're not a sinner? For them, sinner means what it does for the Pharisees. You, well, in the sermon today, I'm not a sinner. I've never committed an act of adultery. I'm not a sinner. I've never robbed a bank. Well, they would say, a lot of the Muslim rulers, even the Saudi rulers, they drink alcohol. So they're bad Muslims. They go to the casinos at Monte Carlo. So they're bad Muslims. So they are sinners. Yeah, they are sinners. They're bad Muslims. There's no harm in killing the infidels taken captive, but nobody should be killed after they've been given an assurance of their safety. Or if you've signed a treaty. In other words, if you negotiate to let the city surrender, and you say, well, we'll let you live as you surrender, then you're not supposed to say, whoops, change our mind, we're just kidding. And do them. So the, some of the crusaders, the nature of an Islamic state, you can't be a citizen unless you're a Muslim. Theocratic rule, that means rule claiming you are God's representative. That's even more explicit in Iran, where you have the Ayatollahs, who are the lights from God. In Saudi Arabia, it's more the, the king and the leader of the Wahhabi Muslims work together. Comprehensive code of life. Nobody should be able to sell alcohol. They're often ignored. There can be separate courts for different faiths and religious matters. In other words, they'd say, if a Jew is being accused by Jews because he's eating pork, we would allow the Jewish authorities to deal with that, as the Roman emperor or someone did. On the other hand, they would say, in a country like Britain, Muslim marriage cases should not be dealt with by the Christian or the secular state. Muslim marriage cases should be dealt with by the Islamic courts. They would say, polygamy is okay. Where the British government wouldn't say that. Persecutions began under the rightly guided caliphs. That's a bit more history than we need here, but there was a big battle going on for the power after Muhammad died. And there were four caliphs at first that were supposedly in charge of the whole thing. And they are called the rightly guided caliphs. Well, even there, there was peace because, not peace, because those caliphs killed Muhammad's family off so that they wouldn't be in competition with them. Muhammad didn't have any sons who survived him, but he had grandsons through his daughter Fatima. And they were the ones that now the Shiites followed. But they were killed, assassinated, by the followers of the rightly guided caliphs. 
10,000 churches were either destroyed or turned into mosques. This is the first step of Islam. Not a new thing. The, the church in Jerusalem is one of the rare exceptions. There, They did not take the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Most other places, they took over the Christian churches. The famous Basilica of St. John the Baptist in Damascus, which became their capital. At first, they allowed Christians to use them too, but then the churches were taken away from the Christians, and the Christians were not allowed to build other churches. Converted into the first great mosque they built, still there in Damascus. Every once in a while, when you go to some of these, when they find out, they take them away, the same way with the mosque in Istanbul. There were a lot of inscriptions of Bible passages in that. And some places, like, if you look way up by the ceiling, you can see where the plaster came off or something, and you can see there was Bible passages there, and then it said been a Christian church, which they had taken over and made into a mosque. And this was the rule rather than the exception. This is that former church. You can see that a lot of mosques are actually like Byzantine Christian churches, aren't they? Coming out of Arabia, they didn't have much architectural tradition. This one could be long and tedious. Umar is also called Omar, so he's one of the first caliphs. They made the agreement under which Christians could live in the Islamic State. And so this pact of Omar is often said to be kind of, in a way, kind of the constitution or the first example of how to live in the Islamic State. It's much longer than this, but I'll just give you uh, a couple examples. So the Christians are supposedly volunteering this to Islam. We as the Christians. When you came into our land, we asked of you safety for our lives and the people of our religion. And we imposed these terms on ourselves. That makes it sound like they volunteered. Not to build any church, convent, chapel, or monks, hermitage. So we agree, we'll let you take all of our churches and we won't build any new ones. It's kind of a deal. Not to repair our churches. Or not, none of them that are in Muslim courts. In Indonesia, which is a, a moderate Muslim company, you, country, you cannot have a church unless you get your unanimous consent of all your neighbors. So when if 20 Al-Qaeda guys come to Jakarta, where are they going to live? They're going to live in 20 different neighborhoods, so they make sure they have at least one objector in every neighborhood. Not to hold, withhold our churches from Muslims stopping there by day and night. So what churches we do have, they are free to use. There's a whole bunch of other things about quartering their horses, paying for their army and everything. To beat the knockers only gently in our churches. Eastern churches don't normally use church bells. They're like clappers. We agree, in our terms we'd say, we agree not to ring any church bells. Because that would be a track bug. In Indonesia, you are not allowed to talk to anybody about Jesus. This is a modern state, not really an Islamic state. In other words, if somebody asks you about Jesus, if you, you try to be friends with them for five years and they sometimes ask you about Jesus, then you can say something. But you cannot initiate a conversation about Jesus. Do we have all missionaries over there now? Our missionaries there, we had them, and what we do now is guys go in and out. In other words, you hope they don't catch you on the computer. They say, this guy, it seems like he's been here an awful lot. I mean, we had to do that in some other countries too. When I went to Russia... My wife and I went as students, because we weren't really legal, which meant we had to go to school and study Russian in the afternoon. And eventually, at some point, they sort of figured out, you know, there's an awful lot of people coming to Wisconsin to be short-term English students. <laughs> and then, so I couldn't get a student visa anymore. The next time I went, I had to get a business visa. We had a, a Bible study center that was incorporated, so I went as a businessman. 
my wife went as the spouse of a businessman. So this is not only in Islamic countries, but in Indonesia, we have people that go in and out. And nowadays, of course, it's, it's much simpler because in some ways, you can teach the students there by the internet. In other words, you don't always have to be physically present to teach the students. Not to carry a procession or a book. Catholic Church and others, of course, like the processions, the Corpus Christi and that. None of that. Not to raise our voices over our debt. You can't have a, an audible service at the cemetery. Not to sell wine or parade idolatry in company of Muslims. That, of course, was directed especially at the Catholic Church. You can't have statues of Mary that could be seen by Muslims. Not to invite a Muslim to our religion, not to invite him to it. And this goes on and on, and I'm not going to bore you all with it. If there is any valid complaint that they have against Christian countries, it's the colonialism around 1900. The British and the French, with a little bit of Italians and, and Dutch in there, they basically had colonial control over all of the Islamic world. This was certainly not a, out of any Christian motive. In fact, the colonialists always hated the missionaries. We can say if there wasn't a colony there, the missionaries probably couldn't have gotten there. They'd have been killed. The colonials hated the missionaries, <coughs> like the British East India Company hated the missionaries. Why did they hate the missionaries? Because the missionaries loved the native people. The missionaries that were trying to help them. If they didn't have medical care, the missionaries would try to improve the medical care. They would try to improve education and agriculture. So the colonials really didn't like the missionaries at all because they wanted to use this religious conflict. The British were really good at that in order to, to uh, you know, control the population. Like in India, they'd use the Muslim against the Hindus and so on. In Nigeria, they used the Muslims in the north against the Christians in the south. So we can say colonialism is a whole political issue, but we would certainly say it was not out of a Christian motivation. Quite the contrary. The colonialism was out of economic desire for control. And so all the way from Morocco, all the way to Indonesia, which was under the Dutch, almost the whole Muslim world was under the control of Europe. And of course, World War II was what ended that. It began breaking down before that, but these countries again became independent after that. And the British were actually the main ringleaders. I could take every country from Morocco to Indonesia and go through a whole bunch of things. And you read about them in the paper all the time. That would take us a whole hour in itself. Yugoslavia, Israel, Pakistan, all the places where there's violence, and a very high proportion of it. A high proportion of the victims are Muslims killing each other, aren't they? It's like, who, who in the United States kills a high proportion of drug dealers? Other drug dealers. <coughs> Other drug dealers, I kill kill a lot more than yeah, the police do. Yeah, you do the police do. So there's always, I mean, there's the, the innocent victims by standing, but a lot of the victims of drug wars are drug dealers. Aren't they? In in the, in the mob here in the United States, mobsters kill more other mobsters than anyone else. So this is also true too. There is a lot of the a lot of this violence is against other Muslims. I'm only going to talk about Indonesia, out of all the countries, because that's where we had missionaries. We can't have anybody there permanently now. Church has to be more on its own. And Indonesia was always considered a very moderate country. Now it's becoming more militant as people come from the Middle East. You might like low gas prices, but one advantage of low gas prices that has pluses and cons, there's a lot less oil money to go into funding these Islamic groups. The world of Saudi Arabia and Iran don't have as much money. So Indonesia, island nation of many different ethnic groups. The Dutch were there. 
So there were Christians in certain parts, Protestant Christians, but mostly Muslim. The Christians were mostly in the east, the purple areas, and we try to work also in the purple areas, but the main island of Java, Jakarta, very solidly Muslim. That's where our church really started and where, I guess you could say, its center was. Christians are suffering persecution at the hands of Muslims, especially in the islands of Silabis. There's regular these headings and so on. And when I first started this some years ago, I said, well, so far our churches haven't been destroyed. Can't say that anymore. <clears throat> this is our church. It's about 10 minutes from, 15 minutes from the police station. It took them about four hours to destroy it. Yeah, this was our church in Dakar. This is the church. And it took them about four hours for the church to be destroyed. When did the police arrive? We were 15 minutes away. 15 minutes after the church was destroyed. So we, we, could, we can't anymore say that none of our churches have been destroyed. This was not officially by the Indonesian government, but by the, the Muslim groups there. So our church there is gone. Our missionaries, kind of, they come in once in a while, they just stay at a hotel or something. But I said, in the computer age, that's kind of dangerous because, you know, once when I was in China, they asked me to take off my hat and they took a special picture of me. And I wasn't ex really explicitly preaching or anything there, or like to get into some of the old parts of the Soviet Union, I would have to say, I did not tell the truth, but I didn't tell them all the truth. They'd say, why are you going to Minsk, Belarus? And I said, to visit my friend. Where are you going to stay? I'm going to stay at my friend's house. And I suppose if they asked me, are you going to teach any classes? If they directly asked me, I probably would have to tell them and I wouldn't get in. But... I think we say, you don't tell them the whole truth. You don't say we're coming to China to try to preach the gospel. What happens if you're carrying your Bible? They would take it away. Not in Eastern Europe, but it, uh, it just depends on the local officials. Some local officials, like our churches in China, the house churches, they're obviously illegal. If you don't speak up publicly against the government, you just worship and you mind your own business, you're not saying the attacking the communist government. A lot of local rulers will decide. This was true in Russian area. He'll decide... You know, I got enough problems. That was true even the Roman emperor. A governor wrote and asked, the official Roman policy was to persecute the Christians because they wouldn't worship the emperor. And so he, he wrote in to the emperor and said, you know, I got these Christians around here. What, what am I supposed to do? And the emperor said, if they're not bothering anybody, don't you have more important stuff to be doing than to worry about them? And of course, if they're bothering somebody or if they're, you know, speaking against the state, then you got to tramp on them. Or if somebody brings you a complaint, and this is in, just in the Muslim world, but in Russia, for example, I was teaching a prison once, and I'm sure it was illegal, because <clears throat> we didn't have a right to be in that city. <coughs> and the prison warden felt, he, he was teenage boys, one step removed from hell. Russian prisons are hell on earth. And these boys, next step, they'd be in the adult prison. And so we were teaching them there, and I can't tell you about all the experience. It was fun doing it. And so I asked... <laughs> I asked the head missionary, was what I did today illegal? And they said, they haven't yet told us that it is. <laughs> and so and so do it. We did not legally have a right to be in that city. But like every place I was, you had to register your passport with the hotel, and you knew it went to the police station and was gone. We couldn't stay in that city. I didn't have a right to stay in that city. So what the missionaries did, 
I'd sleep, I and the missionaries would sleep, it was just part-time for me, we'd sleep on the night train and go to the city of Omsk. Then we'd teach all day Saturday in Omsk. Then we'd get on the night train and sleep on the train on the way back. Legally, I had never been in Omsk because I hadn't stayed there overnight. So this is another tricky question that we can't talk about here, but how do you try to work within the law to protect the local people and yet do everything that you can? We were in another city that was had been forbidden to Westerners, and we were just kind of exploring it. We came back, and there was an old German-Russian lady there, and she she asked Pastor Sullivan, well, what did you do to preach the gospel in, in uh, Kemerova? And he said, well, we were not really legally there. We were just kind of exploring, and we wanted to kind of try to do this through the legal things. And this, the Russian lady said something, Russian German old lady said something interesting, which shows the issue, the struggle you have. The old lady said, Pastor Sullivan said, well, we're not legal here yet, so we didn't formally do anything to preach the gospel. She said, hmm, Pastor, I'm really confused. She said, I need to go home and read the book of Acts. He said, I forgot, where is, where's the chapter in the book of Acts where Paul asked the government for permission to preach the gospel? <laughs> he said, I, I'm kind of forgetful, I'm not remembering where it is. And you see, it, it's a tough thing, because you, you want to kind of protect the people there. Because if, if I do something, they're going to kick me out. Probably not more than that. But the people that have done it, they're going to suffer the consequences. Even in, supposedly, enlightened countries like Finland, we were there speaking against, you know, unbiblical things. We weren't naming names or anything, but we were teaching us what the Bible says. And they started taking action against us. And the man who invited us, they told him, we got two things to say to you. Don't invite Professor Brugge anymore. And don't be with the Wisconsin Senate anymore. And I told him, well, you know, you are the one that is going to be under the, the gun here, so to speak. We can go and rent an he got kicked out of his school. First place we met, after two meetings, we were kicked out. Second place, we got kicked out after one meeting. I said, we must be improving. We're twice, <laughs> twice as efficient as we were the first time. Well, he lost his job and they persecuted him. But he said, no, I think the time for me to make an open confession is here, and I have to do it, and things will fall as they are. See, they could write bad things about me in Finnish, which I didn't care because I can't read Finnish. <clears throat> I could get on the airplane and go home, but we have to do what we can. So Paul did that sometimes too. He went to the Roman courts to protect the people, you know, and say, this isn't really legal what you're doing. And so there's that fine line sometimes of how far do you observe the law and when you say the gospel comes prior. And a lot of the decision, you have to leave the decision on the people. Jesus didn't expose Nicodemus, did he, when Nicodemus was hiding his faith? It wasn't the right thing to do. But Jesus said Nicodemus had to know when it was the time. And when it was time, he did stand up. So this isn't just true of Islam, but any place where the church is persecuted, we have to uh, try to protect the people and let them make the decision. If a Muslim says, I am going to confess my faith, or if our doctor says, I'm going to go back to Pakistan, and if I live, I live, if I die, I die, I wouldn't tell him, you, you cannot go back. You cannot make a confession. But it has to be his decision, and I certainly wouldn't push him to do it. And I wouldn't judge him if he and his family say, you know, for the safety of my children and that, we really need to stay in the United States. We have to let the people who are under the pressure make the decisions. Okay, Islam and terrorism, we won't get very far on that, but I'll 
speak a little bit, so-called dark side of Islam. Again, I've tried to distinguish between terrorism and war. Muslims who might say it's okay to use war for Islam might say, I don't endorse suicide bombing. Although that endorsement is much more common than we might think. In some ways, every cloud, they say, has a silver lining. It's hard to see anything bright and encouraging about terrorism. There's only one kind of small silver lining. The fact that there is so much terrorism coming out of Islam leads some Muslims to say, wow, where is this coming from? Why are we doing this to the Christians? Maybe I have to read some Christian books. Maybe I have to find out you know, if they really do hate us. And should we be doing this? And so sometimes, like Joseph in Egypt or the three men in the fiery furnace and that, sometimes even situations of persecution, as hard as they are for the people that have to endure them, even then the church sometimes grows to them, doesn't it? And some people, some Muslims are saying, wow, I didn't know that was what Islam was. Or the issue we talk about later, women, they say, I didn't know that. The problem is that hatred is taught from very early on, especially for Jews, but also for Christians. This next one I wouldn't show publicly. Who was the first terrorist who killed a poet while she was nursing her baby? He killed a 100-year-old man, and he killed whole tribes. I'm going to take my name off this before it's seen in public. It was Muhammad. And this comes from Islamic sources, not from Christians. We have no Christian sources about Muhammad. They're all Islamic sources. It doesn't take much to start a riot or can the cartoons. Some Muslims believe there can't be pictures of Muhammad. And I'm not defending the cartoonists. There's no doubt that the cartoonists were trying to mock Muhammad. Obviously they were. They were trying to mock Muhammad. Same way the guy that wrote the book, the Satanic Verses, he was, he was trying to mock Muhammad. And he was, a, I think we say, an agnostic or an atheist. But very often the violence, when's the dangerous time? Late Friday afternoon. Why? Because that's when the people are coming from the service at the mosque. If you're in Indonesia, you're very nervous late Friday afternoon because that's the time that's the most threatening to you. Pictures are nothing new. The cartoons were big because they made pictures of Muhammad. Even Christian movies way back when I was a boy, sometimes they didn't show Jesus' face, like the robe or something. You'd simply hear Jesus talking, but you wouldn't see his face. So a lot of Muslims have made pictures of Muhammad. Other Muslims have not shown his face. You see on this picture, I don't know how clear it is in light here, everybody except Muhammad has a face. But the face of Muhammad is hidden so that nothing represents Muhammad. And I think we can say the cartoons were intended to be offensive. But even when they complain about this or about little thing, the stuff that they put out, especially the stuff they put out against the Jews, is just really awful. Why don't they like this picture? It's true, and I've already told you, I wouldn't say it. It's Muhammad with a nine-year-old girl. And they're not playing with toys. <clears throat> Leave it at that. So Muhammad married this nine-year-old. He married her when she was six-year-old. There were political reasons in it. He began a married life with her when she was nine years old. It doesn't help to say that to a Muslim. It just makes them mad. But it's true. I think it's un unproductive to try to start by attacking Muhammad. I told you again and again, we have to talk about who Jesus is. But they would be very offended about this yeah, because it, it tells the truth of what was actually the case. And then, I mean, if you just read the stuff that comes out of Egypt and Islamic countries against the Jews, it's just, 
uh, totally vile, the leader of Egypt, Morsi, who has been put out now, he said the Jews are the descendants of pigs and monkeys. He's the leader of the Islamic movement of the uh, Muslim government. So this is not kind of a strange outward thing. The reason I call it monsters is especially the way that the children are taught to hate. This is, again, nothing new. I mentioned they killed Muhammad's grandsons in the inter-Muslim wars. And, of course, there was a great deal of political motivation in that. Wahhabism is the form in Saudi Arabia. Our English word assassins comes from... What, why, what, what did the assassins do to get hyped up? Hashish. Drugs. So they took drugs in order to get hyped up. They're first formal terrorist groups. So there have always been terrorist groups. And that's not to say all Muslims approve it. The so-called assassins. That's where we got our English word. Wahhabism is quite important. Again, this was only in the 1700s. The Unitarians is their name. There is no God but Allah, not Jesus. This is the political, the religious power that's behind the Saudi throne. So that's one school of Islam. And the alliance between the Saud family will be kings. You guys will be in charge of this. If you don't do any terrorism here in Saudi Arabia, okay. You go to America or Europe or someplace. We're not going to do too much. And most of the terrorism groups that we have in modern times come from that. And of course, all this, it's very hard to sort out the political and the ambitions and the greed from how much of that motive is religious. That's always been the case. There's always these things all time together. So the Saudis and the Islamists are in a very dangerous alliance. The same thing was true in Egypt. The Egyptian government tried to be allied with them, but they made, they made peace with Israel, and then Sadat was assassinated. And so there have always been these kind of issues. As I said, not all by any means, but a very large percentage of the victims of gangster or drug dealer crime are other drug wars. A very, very large amount of the victims of Islamic fighting and terrorism are other Muslims, either who are religious or political rivals of the state. I won't, I won't start this now, I'll wait till next week. The Muslim Brotherhood, which you heard a lot about a couple years ago in Egypt, is kind of the, the mother of all of the terrorist groups that are around now in the Middle East. But again, one terrorist group, ISIS would probably kill all these guys because they're competitors for being the caliph. So there'll always be this competition Within. I'll take a few questions. This is the happiest situation, but again, we define Islam by what the Quran says. And we define the political part of Islam. How has Islam behaved in the last 1400 years? How have the main Islamic states behaved? You have a few isolated groups like the, like the uh, Ahmadiyya. But just as we wouldn't say we want to take Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons as typical of what Christianity is, we would say we have to define it by the Bible. We'd say we have to do the same thing here. We have to define Islam, the main Islam, by the Quran and by the history of what Islam as a state movement and what is it operated. We find it's a very... For 1,400 years, it's been the same pattern. And it's been the standard mainline pattern. And there haven't in the past really been protest groups within Islam because they are eliminated. It's like the Ahmadis can't really openly operate in Pakistan because a lot of the fighting is inter. I'll take a couple questions and then we'll close with prayer. Next week we'll kind of try to finish this off 
and get into the issues that are raised about the role of women, their defenses, and you know how much of it is cultural, how much of it is Arab rather than Islamic, will deal with some of those issues. I'll take one or two questions and then... Uh, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood are, are Shiite then? No, they're Sunni. Muslim so so there, there's interaction between Sunni and Sunni as far as who's right and who's wrong. Yeah, ISIS is Sunni, but ISIS and... ISIS and Saudi Arabia rulers are both Sunni, but they bitterly hate each other and they're competitors for the control of Sunni Islam, which they regard as the real Islam. But Shiite Muslims like Iran, Iran can co cooperate with Sunni terrorist groups if the Sunni terrorist groups are fighting Israel or they're fighting the United States. Remember the slide? You can, you can help a bad Muslim against crusaders and Jews. How many different groups are there? are the main things, but there's many factions within them. And like the Ahmadi, I told you, they aren't considered by Muslims as genuine Muslims. They consider themselves the real Muslims, just like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses would be. In Saudi Arabia, you have a Wahhabi party. So there are many, many parties within Sunni and Shiite Islam. And then there are, a Baha'i is another kind of cult that came out of Islam. And I don't think they bother to claim that they are, they are Islamic. So ISIS just kind of, Osama bin Laden was removed, and a new guy kind of comes in and says, now here's a real Islamic state. So the, the Iranian state and the Saudi state, neither one of them support ISIS because they're their competitors for influence in the Islamic world. They probably could support them and send them guns if we had American troops there. They could help them undermine American troops, but then they might calculate, well, we better cooperate with the Americans here because otherwise they'll kill us. Pakistan did not stop us from flying over Pakistan to bomb Afghanistan because they felt they were, they, the Taliban weren't good for them either. But this, all of these things, and I'm trying to stress, very important. We can't put things that are judgments about political things on the same level as what the Bible says. Like, how exactly should we respond to it? That's a matter of judgment. Is it wise we send more troops there than we don't? It's not a, a religious issue. It's not an issue that the Bible answers. Okay, I'll... Okay. I was just wondering what about that uh, terrorist that the Earlier this week. Well, yeah, well, the terrorists he said rest in Milwaukee. What we don't know is whether how much he was a gullible guy. It, it seems very clearly, I mean, any time the police do things and they use undercover agents or if they have informants, I was on a jury once and the prosecutor said, We're going to bring an informant in who was wearing a, a wire. And as you might guess, informants are not often choir boys. <laughs> And when the guy came in, he had chains on him, and he had the orange suit, and he had the whole works. But we didn't depend on his word. He was wearing a wire. Well, obviously, he probably he was wearing a wire and hoping to get a better deal for himself. So the thing about, you know, there's this idea of entrapment. So I, I can't make any judgment about that. You know, what, would he have done it? Was he right on the brink of doing it? Or did, you know, did he kind of get encouraged by the agents of saying, well, we think we could get you a machine gun. Well, it would he have just gotten someplace else, and they were trying to expose him. So I don't have any negative judgment about that. But they, you know, all the conversations were in Arabic, so they had Arabic informants. Again, an undercover police officer who's going into drug things, he really has to pretend he's a drug guy, doesn't he? He, he, he can't go in and say, hi, I'm a cop, I'd like to bust you for, for doing this. So that, 
uh, involves yet another issue. What is the proper role of undercover investigators? And is there a danger that they not only prevent crimes, but do they encourage them? So was he was, was a naive kid? From what I read, I don't think he was just a naive kid. And yet, most of the terrorists are naive kids that are talked into it by someone. So I think just keep your eyes wide open, watch it, you know, say here are the facts and I'll try to form a fair judgment, a fair judgment. Okay, I'll close with prayer. Well, Lord, we know we live in a sinful world, which there are dangers of every kind for people of every faith and every nationality. And often, as the text for this week show, hostility is directed toward Christians and your word. We pray to, that you will help our government and also Muslims who want to live together in peace, work hard to prevent terrorism and to uh, work for peace and freedom for all people. Give our leaders wisdom and good judgment that they are, become well-informed and aware of the dangers that threaten our lives and also our religious freedom. If it is your will, give us freedom and opportunity to preach the gospel. And if it is your will that we must endure opposition and hardship, give us the courage and the faith to remain faithful to you. We know the world will always be at war with itself until Jesus comes to bring the time of perfect peace. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Jerusalem, the golden Thanks for listening to Green Pastures with Jesus, the audio home of Shepherd of the Lakes Lutheran Church of Fairmont, Minnesota. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our website, www.shepherdofthelakes.net. Pass that along to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archives section at our website for previous podcasts. You can find us 9.30 a.m. Sunday mornings at 323 East 1st Street in Fairmont, just up the hill from Richard's Towing. Any questions, contact me, Pastor Hagen, 507-236-9572. God bless your day.